Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment, and right now I'm calling in from this year's edition of one of the major events of the Fall Fest calendar, the Toronto International Film Festival. For the next few days, I'll be rallying some of the best critics in town to talk about all the titles that are premiering here, so you know the drill. Follow along on the Film Comment podcast and also keep your eye on the Film Comment letter for dispatches, interviews and more from Toronto. It's day two here at the Toronto Film Festival and I am gathered per usual, in the basement of the Hyatt Hotel with two excellent critics who have been polishing their insights, sharpening their knives to bring the best oral criticism possible to the Film Comment podcast. And I will ask these uh, luminaries to introduce themselves now. <laughs> I, I have never had an introduction like that in my life. but um, It was me I'm- trying to be... <laughs> Upbeat and enthusiastic after a very tiring day. I, I think I maybe overdid it. That's all right. We're all in the same boat. Um, well, hi, everyone. I'm Chloe Lazat, and I'm the managing editor of Movie's online publication, Notebook. And you might have seen my byline as a writer in Film Comment, Reverse Shot, Vulture, Cinemascope, and others. Uh, I'm Adam Naiman. Uh, I live here in Toronto. Uh, I'm a contributing editor to Cinemascope. You might have read me in The Ringer or Reverse Shot or Film Comment or Sight and Sound. Uh, or books, or just tweeting about my kids, and that's me. And we love all of it. Um, Adam does come on the podcast sometimes via Zoom, but it is always such a delight to be in your hometown and pod with you in person uh, and get sort of the local take on the Toronto Film Festival. Well, no, and, you know, this is now, I think, the 22nd year uh, that I've covered TIFF, which is a really hard sentence to say out loud. And now I'm just going to sit quietly <laughs> and think about what that means because that actually has now just brought my whole day down. No, come on. It means you're a real pro. It definitely means that the changes that the festival has gone through, which are news these days. I mean, every festival is news. And the, mm-hmm. the piece I wrote for The Ringer this week was about that state of festivals and how it's a time when it seems like people are very vulnerable or things are very contingent mm-hmm. and not always people understanding the real reasons for that or fair reasons for that. But I mean, anyone who's listening and following along playing the TIFF home game, they know what's going on. You know, they know that the festival lost its lead sponsor. They know that there's some films that aren't here that are playing at other festivals, which isn't necessarily a sign of weakness, but is notable. Mm. And there have been some, you know, technical snafus here that, you know, maybe, you know, one or two, whatever. But when it's a series, it tends to make people feel a little bit Mm. unnerved. So you cover TIFF for a long time. All I can say is this is not the first time that the festival sort of seems to be in a little bit of distress. And that's always usually the beginning of a kind of good return to form narrative. But uh, a lot of people kind of looking around sort of wondering what, what, if anything, is a story on the ground here Mm. about that. Yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of um, 
rumblings in festival world in general. We just had some distressing news from the Berlinale about Carlo Chatrian's um, kind of tenure ending. It seems, you know, under very unfortunate circumstances, some kind of clash with the uh, bodies, the state bodies that fund the Berlinale. And yeah, I mean, it's it's you also like you come to a festival like TIFF and you realize how much of this culture that we love runs on like just runs on corporate money, you know, because you and this is not this is not uh, exclusive to TIFF in any way. The New York Film Festival where I work is, is you know, not that much different. You always have to read, like, a whole litany of sponsors before every screening. There's there's the famous Bulgari ad and, and well, all of that. And try, it's just, and, try and reconcile Zendaya and Anne Hathaway <laughs> twirling in diamonds in a castle with, like, the Radu Judah film or, or <laughs> you know, any, any other number of movies. Yeah. I mean, it really makes the art commerce thing so explicit that it's, Funny. Yeah, and I was going to say it's not unique to TIFF, but there is something about walking around the, the light box and Hyatt during this festival and just the number of billboards and like sponsor logos and signs. It's like Times Square or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to that end, um, this is only my second year at the festival, but both times I've been here, I took kind of the first afternoon after picking up my badge to just walk up and down the main street of the festival and look at all the brand activations. Uh-huh. And if you're listening from home, activation is a phrase for like a full on like immersive booth that you can go in that's like a branded experience most of them this year seem to be photo ops and also all the sponsors are like kind of confusing like indeed.com and ups but it's like i I mean it's just it's also just wild to watch people like interact with it and then like you go into the building and like as adam was saying like you go and watch like the human surge three and it's like just everything is happening simultaneously and it's kind of surreal i i i well, I was just going to say, because you mentioned the Radu Judah and like you you picked that out as an example of something that's surreal to watch in this environment. And of course, we're going to talk about the film. But at Locarno, where I was a few weeks ago, uh, during the award ceremony, there was, you know, the winning film was an Iranian film, Critical Zone. And the film team and a bunch of other people did a kind of protest on the red carpet. Um, they had a sign um, saying "Women, Life, Freedom," and Radu and I kind of joined that um, that procession. And so we kind of walked down the red carpet, and then in front of the Piazza Grande, which is this like giant outdoor screen where you know some of the biggest screenings there happen. And then all these photographers came and told us to like pause there right in front of this giant screen and they were taking pictures and we were kind of like perpendicular to the screen. And while they were doing that, there was an ad for UBS. And, you know, Radu and I were just, you know, it was the irony of it. And we were just thinking, I was just like, I feel like I'm in a Ruben Oslin movie, you know? I mean, it's just, it's so obvious. Well, uh, yeah, um, God forbid any of us are in a Ruben Oslin movie. Um, I think like Tiff has always, I mean, people have written this for a long time, so it's not a, a news flash. but I also think it's a solid observation that should never be lost, which is unlike the other big festivals, let's say festivals big enough that folks like you would travel to them unless it's a one-time shot, right? Like the mandatory festivals. Mm. This is a public-facing metropolitan festival that is hugely about its audience Mm. and that is hugely about trying to build and cultivate an audience for year-round screening there's a lot at stake 
And so there has to be different approaches to that word of diversity. It's different kind of diversity of programming because it has to mean that people are going to show up and buy tickets. And you can push and nudge people towards the extreme or radical side of the of film aesthetics only so much. And you have to also have things that are going to bring them in and that they're going to enjoy. And the festival has run on that balance forever. And it's a challenging thing to be all things to all people. The mm. byproduct of trying to be all things to all people is sometimes things start feeling meaningless. Like I already put this in my ringer piece, so I don't feel bad saying it here. Being from Toronto, I always want to be supportive of TIFF because they could not be more supportive of me as a journalist who works mm. here. But you know, like I was reading the press release about them doing an interview with Sylvester Stallone on stage, which is fine. And Sylvester Stallone is very interesting. Mm -hmm. But somewhere in the press release, it's like, Sylvester Stallone's coming on stage at TIFF. TIFF is all about igniting perspectives and telling stories. And I go, these words have to mean something. And I don't think Sylvester Stallone is igniting uh, perspectives or really making us think about the way we tell stories. He made the Rocky movies, which are great, and the Rambo movies, which are great. And he's going to talk about that in the context of a vanity documentary. I just think it's very... He the match. And he ignited per a perspective. I think, okay, Adam. <laughs> yeah, I think it's hard when a festival that, to its credit, has such a wide, almost inco irreconcilable range of things, as this one does, when they're all talked about in the same voice, you can't believe it. Mm. And other festivals that maybe don't have such a wide range of things don't have to find that in-house voice. But when that in-house voice is being applied equally to everything, yeah. your tendency after a while is to be like, I don't buy it, as mm. opposed to I buy it across the yeah. board. And it's the same thing with all the the stuff that TIFF stands for and against, trying to balance that against a Palo Sorrentino diamond ad that honestly makes you want to reach for the guillotine every time you 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 watch it. Yeah. So, um, well, that said, I do appreciate TIFF's range. Uh, you know, as I think Adam, you're right that it makes it difficult to characterize the fest in a way, but it is nice to be at a place where you can like just there's just such a range of different kinds of cinema and different registers of cinema. But I think it, one film that I don't know how, I, like what register it is, what kind of film it is, is the Radu Judah film here. Uh, do not expect too much from the end of the world. It is, I think it it is in some ways very crowd-pleasing, but also so off-putting, just such a strange and wonderful movie that I saw uh, a while ago, but I think you both saw it maybe today. Um, Chloe, did you want to start us off and just uh, describe I this movie? Yeah, I was going to say, all right, uh, well, I can try. So it it follows, sort of. Um, the, the closest thing we have to a main character is a taxi cab driver named Angela, who, or she's also working for a production company she's a pa she's working on a public service announcement that's uh she's interviewing different workers who have had accidents and uh they're like trying workplace to yeah, workplace accidents. Yeah. I'm not I'm not describing this well because I'm trying to gather it in <laughs> right. my head. And I'm also thinking about all the other parts of the movie. Right. Yeah, they've had workplace accidents and it's like this uh public service announcement is paid for by a firm that's trying to basically like cover their asses and like uh it's I, I mean it's it's clear in their testimony that everything that has happened is because they're overworked and yet it's like they need to end with like now wear a helmet 
no, don't drink on the job like I did, but it's like clearly a lie and a fabrication. So these scenes are interspersed with uh, scenes from a 1981 film called Angela Moves On, which follows a taxi cab driver in Bucharest. And um, it, it uh, I'm trying to figure out how to describe this. Um, but he, he sort of like manipulates the film in post too and kind of like slows it down to focus on kind of background actors. And so it's sort of like, Fo it, he widens into kind of this like urban symphony tapestry type mm -hmm. of thing and kind of focusing on people who are secondary characters. Yeah, and who it's might be a, the, the film was made like right at the end of the Ceausescu regime. Yeah. So a lot of the things he's zeroing in on are like the signs of life under that regime, which are hidden in the background because of the sensorial nature right. of the government then. But it's like bread lines and, you know, un people like, in front of um, unemployment or like employment offices, yeah, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think the film itself, like the production was like restricted in certain ways because of censorship. But yeah, and a lot of times like those people are kind of looking directly into the eyes of like the fictional production or directly at the camera. So there's this kind of like fourth wall breaking like um, moment where people who are really out on the street, like kind of noticing this production. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean... And, and we should say that Angela has, as she's doing this... An alter ego, who yes. she, who she, she uses is it face swap, yeah, on her phone, a filter, a filter to to, yeah. to post TikToks as a hybrid of herself and Andrew Tate, right? Uh, you know, which is incredible timing on the movie's part because, I mean, Andrew Tate is one of those people who a lot of people have always known who he is, and the rest of us have no idea. And then there's the unfortunate, like, let's all learn who Andrew Tate is, which which happened this year with the scandal, um, and which actually. It ended up in Romania. In Romania, in, in, yeah, in Romania. exactly. Um, and yeah, so her this avatar she has is like she pretends to be like a crony of Andrew Tate, and she and this is by the way the lead actor of this film is actually an influencer, and she had this persona like before Radu made this film. He he like saw her and then incorporated her and her persona, and so she just goes on these like really crude, sexist you know, ridiculous rants, which are parodies of or, the stuff that... Well, they're parodies of vulgarity, but they also are speaking from her point of view, and I think from the movie's point of view, a certain truth to power, because this movie, unlike a lot of what's programmed at TIFF, is very hard to pin down ideologically. Yeah. I think in a good way, as opposed to to a fault, because there's a real liberation in that crudeness and vulgarity. And some of the... Uh, illusions that are made like when one of the lines is you know i'm trying to be funny through extremity you know i'm like charlie hebdo you know these are such loaded Very, references to yeah. make in a movie that for a western festival audience it does not tilt on a leftward axis the way that you would necessarily yeah. expect a western film would because it is set in the ruins it's, it's in the ruins of actually existing politics that uh you know contradict a lot of utopian thinking and that's why the film is a breath of fresh air. It's like rancid air. And I have a friend who told me that the subtitles today are not remotely as vulgar as the dialogue. The friend uh, the friend worked on the 80s film that's in the film, yeah, right? Yeah, there's a prof here at York University in Toronto. A um, Romanian prof. A ru Romanian yeah. prof who has a connection to that early film. So she saw the movie today. You know, Her thoughts on the movie were interesting because she wasn't nuts about it. But, you know, she had a lot of context for it about the people who made the earlier film and about 
you know, the tradition that's being worked in and invoked. What she said to me first and foremost was she's like, you're not getting a quarter of the dialogue, mm. which is, you know, fascinating because even with what we're getting, it's pretty nasty. It's so nasty. And that idea of nastiness as a crucial part of satire. Yeah. That satire thrives on vulgarity and juvenilia is sort of, this is a real test case for I mean, that. I wouldn't even call it vulgarity. I would call it profanity because... It really is like this approach is nothing is sacred. You know, everything can be profane. Uh, I wanted to add a couple notes just to give listeners a, you know, a vivid picture of the film. So the film has the, our protagonist, Angela, um, driving. Basically, the whole film has her driving through Bucharest. And that's why there's this parallel with this older film, because it's two women, you know, working women in cars. But where in the old film this taxi driver is somewhat in some ways a figure of female empowerment. You know, she's one of the rare female taxi drivers and she's very bold. The present day Angela is works 16 plus hours a day as a contract worker is paid very poorly, is afraid of falling asleep on the wheel. And I believe that uh, her character is inspired by a real production assistant who fell asleep on the wheel and died in Romania. So, She's kind of driving around doing these auditions and amid other things and recording her little videos. And to your point, Adam, I mean, I think the film is, there's a lot of things politically. It is, you know, of course, reacting to Romania's own history of, um, which has been the subject of many of Radu Judas films. But it is like a ruthlessly anti-capitalist film too, like anti-Western capitalist specifically. And um, no, Chloe, did you no, want to add something there? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, um, just thinking about this nothing is sacred point, there's a whole interlude that focuses on um, wanting to develop real estate on a cemetery and needing to, like, rebury corpses. And so it's kind of like, if you're offended by the vulgarity and, like, the ironic vulgarity, which, like, people in the film, like, some find it distasteful, some find this avatar really funny, kind of in a freeing way, like we were talking about, like, then kind of what what are you hanging on to as sacred if we are living in the ruins too? Yeah. So I think a lot of that's deployed really well. And then there's also this frame which connects. The movie is like a group of either connecting frames or intersecting frames or like concentric frames because all the different components, they, they interlock at all these odd angles. The movie is hugely about filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Not just the fact that Absolutely. she's making movies as an independent filmmaker, you know, in between this gig economy, but there's a long interlude on the set of an Uwe Boll film and the film really sort of suggests not just a kind of anti-capitalist, but a Uwe kind Bull of... plays himself, to Uwe, be clear. Uwe, yeah, Uwe Bull plays himself, and he really gets a kind of platform and megaphone to talk about, you know, his utter lack of care about a certain kind of judgment and a certain kind of cinema, mm. which means that Radu Jude seems to feel the same way about that cinema by, by privileging and platforming Bull in the same movie where he makes a joke about, you know, Godard and euthanasia. Mm. Like, there's, you know, I mean, that's very deliberate. And then there's also a sequence towards the end it's impossible to spoil. I think it's a little futile to describe, but I want to just invoke it by saying it is a scene about filmmaking and about the subtle and explicit manipulations of filmmaking, particularly documentary filmmaking, and when documentary intersects again with those interests that she's serving mm. of the PSA. With advertisement, with, ad- with profit, yeah. with covering your ass. <laughs> and, and, and then somewhere in there, the film invokes, in, in the one thing in the film I found very moving, you know, brings in something of Bob Dylan too, mm. as the sort of in, in, ideally the kind of maverick artist that I think Radijuda would want to be. The, the that sequence is the sequence of the year. 
or it's up there and it it dis, it dilates time like the movie is not equally divided but it is two parts so everything we've described is about two hours and then this is about half an hour part two and that's the scene of the year mm. for me but i just don't want to say what happens in it mm-hmm. yep. co-signed cool. um yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I don't want to spoil it either, either, but all I'll say is like that kind of durative aspect of it where you can just kind of stay in this moment and kind of watch it unfold. It's unbelievable. It's incredible. Yeah. And, you know, I think there, I will be, I think, grappling with the profanity aspect of the film. And again, by profanity, I don't mean curse words. You know, this some of the things that Adam was referencing, these jokes that I think many would consider in poor taste, like about Godard or Charlie Hebdo. I, but I, you know, there are, of course, uh, dirtbag leftists everywhere. Uh, it's, a, it's a whole kind of genre of, of leftism, uh, of people who, who put a lot of political investment in provocation. But with Judah's work, I've never found it to be self-indulgent um, or blinkered or, you know, blinker to, like, the actual oppressions and actual lives of oppressed people you know I mean for all the like insane distasteful humor the film has such great sympathy for exploited peoples you know for like for the lack of a better word downtrodden peoples in Romania the the people who are auditioned in the film even even though the framework within which they're auditioned, like, it's really cruel sometimes. But you feel his rage on their behalf and you feel his, um, you know, yeah, just like this sincere regard for, like, people who are just, like, getting the short end of the stick. And I feel that that really shines through somehow, uh, through all of his trickstery kind of, um, you know, flourishes. Yeah, totally. And I think, um, I mean, a lot of the filmmaking process as we see it unfold in the first two hours um, is about like using people as props. And that's kind of what's satirized. And then this ending part is also very much about that. But the way that it's done is clearly kind of from Judah's perspective in the ways that you're saying and like kind of, yeah, I don't know, locates. And when we talk about it being outside of the TIFF norm, it put me in mind today that um, a movie that very much is the TIFF norm, a kind of prototypical TIFF movie would be something like Craig Gillespie's Dumb Money, which I don't know if either of you have seen, which is about the GameStop, uh, you know, online embroiler. I mean, we're getting to the point where, like, how recent can something be and still be a period piece? Because there are huge <laughs> cultural and technological gradations between now and 2021. So it is a period piece, but, like, we're moving further and further towards, you know, the singularity of a period piece about now. But my point being, it heroizes uh, Roaring Kitty, you know, this investor who got untold thousands of people online to invest in this stock in a very performative very uh, defiant anti uh, you know hedge fund kind of way and went from a kind of online joke to truly affecting the stock market to the point where you know the hedge fund managers had to kind of fight back but this is a film as Craig Gillespie has directed it that is so intent on being Frank Capra-ish inverting the misanthropy of a movie like I, Tanya, which I think is disgustingly mean-spirited movie. So he's trying now to make a kind of Capra-ish movie about this group of diverse, eclectic, plucky Americans banding together through their phone apps to buy these stocks and, you know, stick it to the, the man. The problem is in doing so, it hugely whitewashes 
all the vulgarity of online movements. Mm-hmm. Whether you're talking about one like this that I guess was oriented in an anti-capitalist way or something like the other game-based one, which is Gamergate, mm-hmm. which was just an outpouring of obliterating misogyny Mm. and there's a huge amount of crossover between those movements in this movie there's like one line someone's like boy the people online really are like sticking it to him it's like yeah there's a little bit of anti-semitism going on it's like yeah but it's just a little bit and it's like no i mean a a really a really complex movie would take a look at the language and the visual vocabulary that's going on and instead of just using it as trim it would sort of show how defiance and political activism and radicalism and vulgarity are bound up together in ways that are not always righteous. So that's not why pure and not pure, which is yeah. why when I look at this film, which I don't think just puts those attitudes in its characters, it displays those attitudes itself. I'm kind of shocked watching it in Toronto because it's not politically a doctrinaire movie. And it's like really bracing how kind of ambivalent it is. Whereas something like Dumb Money, which is not bad or great it just kind of is and it does not matter at all that the movie exists um you know it's just so easy yeah it's a fun contrast no i mean i think um yeah i was very taken with the film even before i'd made up my mind like what i actually thought of it just impressed with this like the density the level of control just the intelligence i mean it's just a very intelligent film um I do want to move on to another kind of major uh, auteur film that has... Is it Dumb Money? You move on from Dumb Money (laughs) to uh, a film that actually has uh, an interesting resonance with um, Do Not Expect Too Much from the End of the World, which is Evil Does Not Exist. You know, like that's... As I said it, I was like, wow, those titles kind of go go together and there are some actual similarities in theme too dare i suggest but um i don't know adam chloe one of you wants to quickly say what this film is about (laughs) chloe seems uh, to say no so adam (laughs) so there's a a town more of a village uh sort of remote but not i didn't even say Evil does not exist by Ryusuke Hamaguchi. Yeah. Sorry. That's, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's the, a big auteur. Probably the most unlikely Oscar-nominated director of the last however many years, in a good way, mm-hmm. right? Of course, yeah. But, um, yeah, you know, really masterful, but still quite, still kind of like fresh and mysterious and inventive filmmaker, like a youngish master mm-hmm. filmmaker. And this movie is evidence of that because we're still at a point with him where you don't know what you're going to get. And I don't think anybody who loved drive my car would think that this movie is the logical next step but no it's set in a sort of small remote village i think it's a couple hours drive from tokyo and they emphasize the fact that while it's not metropolitan it's not that far because the whole plot hinges on the idea that this production company or ad company is going to build a glamping site so which is glamorous camping you know, which is so fun. It's like leave the city and then basically just bring the city into the country. All the, all the you know, comforts of home with this fake, you know, rusticness. And the proposal was sort of brought to the inhabitants of uh, the village who roundly and articulately reject it. But I, I'm not really telling the structure of the movie right because before the glamping plot is introduced, we're with the town. And there's an incredible mix of simplicity and peace and a kind of just eerie absence. Mm -hmm. And I found myself incredibly uncomfortable Mm -hmm. 
from the first seconds of this movie. There's a child. Um, who's always getting lost. He was always getting lost. It's snowy. It's wooded. And there's a melancholy. Everyone seems to be in the village, seems to be bearing the weight of some kind of melancholy, you know? Yeah. yeah it kind of disrupts this, like, because it opens with this kind of amazing, like, tracking shot from below, looking up into the trees, and Aiko Ishibashi does this, like, amazing kind of string score, but then, like, subtle dissonances come into that music, too, that just kind of puts you off kilter, and, like, yeah, like you said, there's this child who's getting lost, like... Um, we know that, like, her father, like, the mother is not in the picture and she just appears in a photograph. We never really know why. And he kind of is, like, bearing this silent internal weight. Then and, the glamping thing begins. And he's like, the father is supremely competent. He is hugely representative of the place. He's a figure of tremendous respect. And he does not have a bad relationship with the daughter. And yet none of this is comforting. And he's constantly showing her or the child is finding or being shown evidence of slippage, disappearance, erasure, death. They come across a dead fawn. There's feathers from birds that aren't there anymore. There's tracks leading to nowhere. And so then when you get into the middle portion, which is really kind of like a civic comedy, you know, like what's the meme that goes around of the Norman Rockwell painting of the guy standing up and having an opinion? I mean, you have this great town hall meeting, which has these wonderful, just when you think like someone has demolished this glamping plan the most thoroughly, someone else is like, also, this is bad. <laughs> and also, this is bad. And then just when you think you have the movie pegged as being about how shitty these glamping uh, consultants are, they're actually not. They're like really wounded and chastened. And they like go back to their boss being like, we probably shouldn't do this. And at this point, I was very excited watching the movie because it's so shapeshifty. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what is what is the movie? Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, for me, that was kind of like because it's like this talent agency and the two kind of representatives who have to pitch the glamping uh, project to the town like they get humiliated. And then there's the scene where they're kind of driving back and they're tasked with kind of convincing them or like convincing the main character to like come on as caretaker in this sort of manipulative way and they have this conversation in the car that sort of unfolds over several minutes and at first is about kind of this project and then kind of evolves into something about like their personal lives and like slowly kind of adds more dimensionality to the characters in this way that I feel like Hamaguchi in particular like I always really value his films for that like yeah. um you know, he does that over kind of longer durations, but also over like the vignettes of Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy too. And, and, and then come these reminders, which I'm so determined off mic to ask you guys what you think it means and, you know, the parts in the last half hour, but this movie's so new, we're not going to do that. What no. I'll just say, then there comes a, par a portion of the film where you are reminded that this is a student of Kiyoshi Kurosawa mm. and a student of, 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 of Kiyoshi who works closely with him. They're still very friendly. Hamaguchi wrote the script for a Wife of a Spy. And I hold Kurosawa in the highest regard. Like, this is the compliment of all time for me because I think Koshi Kurosawa is the most frightening contemporary filmmaker. Mm. And there's moments in this where Hamaguchi is, I think, working in that mode. And I I'm amazed that he's able to do all of this yeah. in one movie. I think we're going to be talking about that ending for a while. Um, a really kind of intriguing, mysterious, beautifully choreographed, calibrated ending. You know, I think... All the Hamaguchi films I've seen, I, I haven't seen some of his like very early work, but you know, the work that circulated uh, at festivals. 
he at the end of the day i think what i've really loved about his work is he is a lover of melodrama right like drive my car we love uh Fortune and Fantasy, Asako 1 and 2, like all of them, Happy Hour. The characters are very like rich and, you know, richly drawn and interpersonal relationships are of great interest to Hamaguchi. And he really knows how to like delve into them and into the kind of, um, you know, into kind of soapy aspects of them while still leaving a lot of room for mystery. And his films are often also very plotty, you know, which doesn't mean that, you know, it's they're not predictable in any way, but a lot of stuff happens to people and then people deal with that stuff. And so this film really took me by surprise because it is not plotty and there are really no characters as such. Like the protagonist, the child's dad, I think you could call him the protagonist, complete cipher. You know, there's just no, there's not that much interpersonal relationships outside of that car scene where the two it's funny also that they are talent agents who come to pitch this construction project they like manage influencers or something you know it's like such a scam and yeah they have this conversation where we learn a little bit like Adam was saying about their personalities and they're they're kind of lost too but everything is so ambiguous and everyone is kind of a cipher so I just I've I was so surprised and taken with it and found it to be so bold given his past work. I will say though that I have not understood the ending. I I mean, I don't know if I need to understand it. I thought it was very, like I said, affecting and mysterious. But there is something that feels a little thinner here to me. Like, despite everything I said about how bold it is, there's something that's a little bit thinner and maybe cryptic to a fault for me. I want to know what Chloe thinks about that without spoiling it. I want to know what smart people think. <laughs> That's always the thing without spoiling it. Like, I think um, for me, I think you're right that like he's working more with ciphers and more with ambiguity. And like, I still feel like there's this sense that like everything is so kind of like carefully structured to be like a little bit more withholding than normal and a little bit more mysterious. And so I always felt I was on like steady ground with the characters, even though. I wasn't like kind of learning more and more that kind of revealed more about who they were. But as for the ending, I mean, it's it's disquieting. It's like a beautiful mesmerizing mood piece. There are images in it that have not left my head all day. Um, and I think I feel I felt like it could be taken on like a few different symbolic levels, too, where it's like some of it could have been literal. Some of it could have been imagined, but it all kind of happened as such and I feel like does stand in for a lot of the dynamics in the movie mm. I apologize to anyone listening at home this is not going to be <laughs> helpful so to you until I you felt, can see it in a few years I, in a few months <laughs> I felt like for the whole movie this is what I admire about him this is a discourse of the United States about some of the directors let's say of this generation or slightly older it's like do you retreat into period pieces or do you face the future right Absolutely. and no one should be penalized for making a period piece and movies that face the future are not a priori good but there's something with this film and, and Roger Judas' film, what combines them. These are looking at right now. They're looking at it in different ways, from different perspectives. I think one of them is much, much more determined that you understand what it's saying. Because Judas is yeah. a film of aphorisms and maxims and quotes. There's one of the end credits is quotes by talky. quotes yeah. by every by Dylan, by Zizek, you know, by novelists. Whereas evil does not exist. Even the title connotes a kind of absence that it's not going to say. 
But to circle back around to praising a film through another filmmaker, and this way I don't spoil what happens in this movie, I can just evoke other movies. There's a few Kiyoshi Kurosawa movies like Cure and Charisma, which is the one I thought of during this, where even on a first watch or Charisma's case on like a fourth watch, if I can't understand what's happening, I know it's bad. Mm. And it's not just bad in the sense of the plot of the film. Like, it's bad. This is a tragic... Uh, I, I wouldn't use this word for the for evil does not exist, but when that happens to me, I think the film is underthought, you know? I don't know, because I'm a vibes kind of viewer, <laughs> and I felt that, if nothing else, that last half hour, not just the what of what happens, but the how, and when Chloe, you're so right to mention the composer, who's really the star of the film, to the point that the film was, I think, conceived initially as a series of images to that music. I think there's a companion film that's going to play somewhere that's just, you know, image and, and music. Um, I thought that the way that that last 30 minutes builds, it kind of, it's not really a matter of literal meaning. It's a feeling that is I'm left with. And I think kind of a feeling as a parent, which isn't to say you've got to be one thing or another to appreciate a movie. I don't mean that at all. But there's a certain group of movies made last year's very disparate films whether it's even something like ben wheatley's kill list where it's just like as a parent i'm just like ah and this movie as a parent mm. with this child who tends to go missing and this question of wayward lost kids and who is watching out yeah. for them and what are they facing coming forward there's like, i found it very scary it's there's tricks of perspective there that really i you know, made me gasp and and I found very unsettling. I mean, I found it so powerful, but I guess I'm the kind of viewer who does, if not look for meaning, I do want to feel like the movie is saying something, you know? Um, and I, I don't know, maybe I just haven't arrived at that with this one yet, and I'm definitely going to rewatch it, but I'm just, I'm looking for that meat, but I want to say that without discounting how beautiful and, like, just... Um, yeah, just mesmerizing that ending is. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say on the unlocking meaning part of it, like there were parts of it that I, I totally get where Adam is coming from with the parent, like kind of this wayward child, like that's very present. It's also kind of like connected to the like um, the glamping, like kind of environmentalist, yeah. like kind of exploitative, like, uh, you know, the, the connections in the ecosystem too, like... Yeah, again, it's it's very hard to talk around this, but yeah. I But I think it's a sign that he of how talented he is that this movie kind of came semi out of nowhere. Right, yeah. Not super When did he make it? He made yeah. it. I know, it was just all this year. Not super heralded. Yeah. Very much getting play in the fall festival lineup. I think it's one of the rare films that's at, unless I'm wrong, Venice, Toronto, and New York. It's not like this is like an undiscovered thing. No. But I mean, he made it pretty quickly. He made it. And yeah, he just And it's seems... so different from his two yeah. major successes. Um, well, speaking of a young master, let's let's now talk about an old master who may have just given us his swan song. His or, a heron song. His heron song. Excellent segue. <laughs> Very good. Which, I, Chloe, I believe you have not seen yet. The new Unfortunately, no. But I sure did wake up along with Adam very early today to line up for The Boy and the Heron, the new movie by Hayao Miyazaki. And Adam, what did you think of it? Because 
uh, I don't well, know, as as a parent. As a, as a, <laughs> apparently, um, apparently, as, as a parent, um, we are very much a Studio Ghibli house now. Uh, I get up every morning and walk over not one but two stuffed Totoros. You know, we play Ponyo if we go swimming. Um, the body of work is obviously staggering. I mean, he is uh, he he has entertained and in some ways, you know, beguiled the world's children, which in contrast to some of the stuff that has been written about his own personal life and family is very moving, right? And I think one of the texts that gets invoked a lot when like great entertainers or showmen make what seems to be a last movie, like everyone talks about The Tempest and Prospero, you know, like this idea of like, you know, I've used my powers for so long, they're kind of at their peak and waning at the same time. I really, really just kind of want this to be great and then I'm done. And I think that the way to read this movie was kind of being written for people for the last few months where it's like, he's done, this is his last movie. He's made this movie as a way to say goodbye to his grandson. This was all reported on. And then at the premiere the other night, his producer's like, he's fine. He's coming to work with new ideas tomorrow. That's a quote, right? And I think it throws a lot of people's lead paragraphs off because <laughs> the interpretive rubric for the movie is supposed to be this is his last film. And so this plot about a young boy who encounters through incredibly convoluted fairy tale means a kind of prospero like figure in another universe who's basically saying to him for lot for better lack of a better word like you know this is yours now um that has yeah, a lot this this thing i built is now yours this thing i built is now yours um that is powerful i think regardless but it's really powerful if this is a last film. And now that it's not, I think it's just, it's just, it just, in some ways it, I'm happy because it makes the vacuum packed reading like irrelevant. Yeah. You kind of have to deal with it on its own terms. Those terms are wacky as fuck. Like, so, I just, so much stuff. It, it's so convoluted and so frankly random, but never not entertaining, never not beautiful. You know, yeah. what's the like synopsis? For okay, so <laughs> tell me about it. Good, there, luck. Good luck. There's a boy. When is the movie set? I, I sort of blanked a little bit it's on that. It's the waning days of World War II. Of World War II, right? So his mother dies in a in a. It's implied in a hospital fire that maybe a bombing. It's very grave of the fireflyzy. Then he moves to the country. So then it's very my neighbor Totoro. And there's a heron who's very obstreperous and annoying. Yeah. So he moves to the country with his father, father. who has a new wife who's pregnant. And he moves to this like old house with these large grounds. There's a little coterie of like maids. Um, oh, oh, and this pregnant new wife is also his dead mother's sister. sister. So yeah. And so, you know, the so his stepmom slash aunt is sort of like trying to you know, just bring him into her world and, and she's into this super house. Nice. Yeah, there's nothing wrong. No, with her. E no evil stepmom here, it. and no. the father seems like pretty attentive and nice too, though he's not around that much. No, and he's too fetishistically interested in all the fighter jet um, things that they manufacture. He's like, look at these beautiful like plane right. windows, and he's I'm a like, real militaristic. I'm like, that's not great. Yeah, 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 not ideal. Um, but the basic plot is that there is a gray heron that comes and kind of annoys this kid all the time and is uh, pretends to be his mother and makes a lot of references to his dead mother and says, like, your mother isn't dead, come see. And so the movie is him 
the first half of the movie is him getting used to his new life, his new home, but like kind of battling with this heron. And then the second part, without I'm trying not to spoil too much, is he follows this heron and let's just say stumbles upon this other world on this estate that has ties to his mother's and his grandfather's pasts and his granduncle's pasts. And which, and which is just palpably making itself up as the movie as goes along, goes. to the point that the inhabitants of this world seem somewhat confused as to their, their provenance, their origin. And it's funny yeah. because cool. the movie does not have rigorous laws and boundaries like the space-time physical <laughs> laws. Like, if we go through this door, we'll be somewhere else totally. Or like, this is the only way we can get there and this is my power. And then three minutes later, it seems somehow to contradict that. This is not a criticism. No, but it's true. It's, it's just an it's, observation. It just is like just contorting every minute. And it's true. At some point I was like, well, didn't he say that that was his last thing? You know, I, there were. But also it's like, yeah, there is a character and you're like, is she supposed to be his mom? Or is it just kind of accidentally that she evokes his mom when she was young? I mean, there's just so many complex connections that aren't that don't all seem sound but you know i i can see this being like a really great ride for a child you know there's like armies of pelicans and there's like little creatures called wara wara are they like fertilized eggs or something or spermy they 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 go into the sky and are born on earth as babies i don't know there's <laughs> also there's there is also the comedy cut of the year which is when they find themselves surrounded by uh, huge human-sized parakeets. That's not the cut of the year. That's just funny. Uh -huh. And then they're walking with the parakeets. And then there's a cut. And you see the parakeets are carrying like comically oversized knives and forks behind their back because the parakeets plan to eat them. And it's like a cut worthy of Chuck Jones or worthy of The Simpsons. Like a lot of it's really funny. And when you say it's a ride, I think it's a ride. I think for older audiences, it's two things. It's a bit of a, a highlight reel of Miyazaki. Mm, yeah. Because there's, whether it's the pastel-y backgrounds at the beginning, they're like, and they're very still like Totoro, then the animation style moves and changes to evoke something like Spirited Away. There's characters that seem to be modeled specifically on figures from older movies. So like the Miyazaki highlight reel part, but also, again, the for the older audience or the more mortality-facing audience, However convoluted it is, it does start narrowing to something pretty plangent by the end about inheritance. Yeah. Right? And it's kind of like, what are you going to do with stuff? Which is actually where I think it feels a bit like Evil Does Not Exist. As yeah. a movie that's kind of about what are, what are, what, what's a younger generation stepping into. And it gets so chaotic at the end. I mean, my God. Oh, God. Yeah, it truly is so chaotic. But yeah, I do think it puts forward this question of like, what is a gift and what is a burden? You know, what is a responsibility and what is a choice for a younger generation? Um, and I, but, but there's just so much <laughs> chaotic stuff that happens on the way that I don't know how um, effectively or how strongly the film makes that point. But I also think, the movies, like you said, it's a highlight reel. It's having fun. It's just coming up with these wacky scenarios and then executing them. I had a good time with it. Is it the best Miyazaki I've seen? Absolutely not. Might it be the last Miyazaki I'll ever see? Seems no, because he's apparently making more films. He's in the office this Monday. <laughs> he's drawing. According yeah. to his producer. According to his so, producer. You know, 
Chloe, are you are you a Miyazaki person? Uh, yeah. I mean, I've seen kind of the greatest hits. Greatest I hits. wasn't like as I, I think it's like I came to it kind of later when I was getting into film rather than like when I was yeah. like I, I know a lot of people who like right when Spirited Away came out like saw it then. So it's more like it's less of a like pull to childhood kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, listening to you talk about the wackiness of this too, I was wondering like. I wonder if kids like unlock totally new meanings and things like this just because they're like freed from like the logic of like now who is that and how how does this connect back to this person? But and I mean, out of my approach able to speak of this. time, probably too, right? Yeah, like, kids yeah. Have, I always think that's so cool. But. Yeah, I I feel like kids just have don't have such a heavy sense of pastness as we do, right? It's like this ability to like keep up with the new. Well, I, oh, I know there's no movie in the last two or three years of any movie that means more to me now than Totoro because of how much my oldest daughter loved it and how she loved it, which was in watching this still, quiet movie in which almost nothing happens. Mm. And she's now not, it's not like she's developed this taste in any other direction. She's insanely overstimulated and every morning it's SpongeBob and Captain Underpants, but Totoro has this power. And I thought of Totoro during this just because that is a film, if you've seen it, that it's really about this idea in childhood, you kind of have to just accept that things are gonna be okay. And that's sort of the kid's job, is to accept that there's someone looking out for you yeah. and that things are going to be okay, which I find so moving how it gets inside of that. This film is not saying that. This mm -hmm. film is definitely not saying to kids it's going to be okay. It's sort of saying there's real frailty at the top. Yeah, and, and it's saying like you decide if you want to be okay. And you decide if you want to be okay, yeah. which is an interesting advancement, From, right? Yeah. Well, on that note, <laughs> maybe on that very on that terrifi existential. terrifying existential note, <laughs> maybe we wrap up. Is there anything you wanted to no. shout out or add? No. All right. Just thank you for yeah. Thank you us. so much, Steph. Always a pleasure. I I always feel just so grateful when people are willing to do this with me at the end, like tail end of long festival days. So thank you so much. And we will, we shall hopefully gather again um, before the end of the festival to harvest more fresh insights for the Film Common podcast audience. Good night, both of you. Thank <laughs> you. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.